0: Podcast brought to you by New Cardigan. Our last Cardicast of 2019 is a tour of the National Herbarium of Victoria, and technically not a Cardi party. We actually managed to tag along to an Alia Victoria event. The Herbarium doesn't often allow tour groups to view their collections, but myself and Nick McGrath, the vice president, were able to participate in their event. The tour was taken by Pina Milne, collections manager for the Herbarium, as well as Sally Stewart, their librarian.
1: So, welcome to the National Herbarium in Victoria that you've been desperately trying to get into. (laughs) You've got the 1934 building which is what faces the front and the 1988, 89, 88 building that circles around this building. So you're in um, a collection area. We hold about, and I'll talk about the herbarium specimens. So, Sally's responsible for the library, and I'm responsible for the herbarium specimen component. So, we have about 1.5 million specimens. They're pressed and dried plants, fungi, algae, bryophytes, so mosses, liverworts, etc. And they cover Australia and the globe. So, the herbarium was established in 1853 with the appointment of Ferdinand Muller as the first government botanist. The herbarium initially was actually over there near the shrine. A tiny little building that was there up until um, 1934 and then it was demolished when this building was um, put together. Now it's the oldest scientific institution in the state. Most people say, well what is a herbarium? No, we don't have herbs inside. We have pressed and dried specimens. If I say to you a gallery, or if I talk to you about a museum, you generally have an idea of what's within that. But often people don't understand what we actually hold. The other benefit we have here is that we have what we call the State Botanical Collection. So Sally's responsible for the library, and she'll talk about that once we get upstairs. And I'm responsible for the collection, which sits in the first two levels. So the State Botanical Collection, so collectively. So our plants date back to very early times and we'll actually hopefully show you once we get upstairs material that dates back to the late 1500s through to present day. What happens to a specimen? How does it get here? There are a number of ways. It can either be collected by botanists of today and we still collect and press specimens in the same old fashioned way with a wooden press between newspaper and card. So these is our specimens in here. So the collection is, sorry, they're actually drying.
2: How do you do it? And why does it look like a giant freezer?
1: Okay, it's actually an oven. If you, if you come up, you'll see that it's quite warm. We can set the temperature. Now basically, normally specimens are dried out in the field. So we pop them between newspaper and they can be dried out in the field. But botanists will then bring them back and to ensure that they're absolutely dry, they will place them into the dryer. Now what they need to do is every so often have a look at them, check um, the paper that's not, is actually not too damp and that there's no mould. Um, depending on the type of plant you're working with, it can determine how long it actually has to be in the dryer. So, we have specimens that have been collected very, very recently. Plus, we have specimens, of course, that date back, as I said, right back to the um, late 1500s. Now, how did those specimens get here? In Muller's time, he exchanged material with botanists all around the world. He also had collectors right across this continent collecting for him. But the other thing that he did, he actually bought herbaria. So during the 1800s it was very fashionable if you had the money to actually acquire herbarium specimens. So he was very um, close to a botanist called Otto Sonder. He was a botanist in his own right, but at those times they used to actually train as pharmacists and he knew that um, Sonder had this amazing collection, just brilliant collection and he wanted it. So he actually harassed the government of the day and it took him about 15 plus years to get the money to buy it and in 1883 this collection that we think is about 250 to 300,000 was purchased and became part of this collection and some of the specimens that we'll look at today come from that Sonder herbarium and then Sally can talk about Muller's time and his books Anyway, once the specimens are actually pressed and dried, in order to get into the collection, they have to be prepared in a certain way. They have to be curated. Mm -hmm. They have to be put on acid-free paper. The necessary documentation associated with it has to be applied to the sheet. So when you go out and collect, not only are you collecting the actual specimen, you have to collect information. Where were you collecting it? When you collected it? Who collected it? All that information. Because if you don't have that... There's no value in your specimen at
0: all. So the drying process is Literally, just for preservation and to stop it going moldy, and that's and right, stuff like that. So, so right. how long do they need to be in the oven It varies, so I, yeah, uh, depending on what
1: material you're trying to drive, for example, something like a cactus can take quite a long period because of time it's such a, can, high a can, yeah, and often they have to be cut in half to actually expose their contents on the inside, or else they do go very moldy, something that's small, look, anywhere between a few days to a week, even two weeks. It just really depends on the plant itself. So once they come out of here, um, a botanist will examine the material. If he doesn't know what it is, he'll give it a name, use keys, and then eventually it has to come into what we call our volunteers area so that it can be curated and make its way into the collection. So we're going to go into the volunteers area with this mounting place. So this is where the volunteers actually mount the specimens. And what happens is the specimens that have come in, either between newspaper, are actually allocated to the various volunteers to work through. Now, we have a a volunteer program, about 30 volunteers, um, and they spend in here about three hours per week. Some even come twice a week in order to work in this area and basically what happens is they get given a bundle of specimens and they mount the specimens so that they look in a particular way. Excuse me, I can just... If you want to pop up, come up and have a look at these. These have just been done today. So, they will be received either between newspaper or between um, just older paper, and then they have to be mounted um, in a particular way so that you have card and all the collecting details associated with it and then it has to be attached in a particular way. You'll, you'll notice they use little strips to actually adhere or in some cases there's stitching that needs to be done if there's little branches. So it's a training of about three months in order to get to a point where um, you're really, really competent in doing this. Now. As I said to you, some material can come through newspaper, some can actually come in these straw boards. I talked earlier on about the Sonder Herbarium. A lot of that Sonder material is actually still held in straw boards like this. So in order to actually access this material, it puts it at risk if we give this material like this to a botanist to examine. If I open one of these up, you'll see that they're just... Specimens between paper and with a loose label. Now, in this case here, this was material collected by Pringle, and we have a lot of material that was collected by Pringle in the US. And this one in particular was collected in um, 1894. Now, in this state, um, you know, it's, it's vulnerable to loss. So, what happens in here is to actually secure the specimen onto acid free paper. And all the necessary labels are attached accordingly. How do you go with pest control in terms of um, against the massive beetles and things like yeah. that? Yeah. We have a freezer, so before everything goes into the main collection, it must sit in the freezer for seven days at negative 24 and then goes into the collection proper, which we'll walk through in a moment. So historically, specimens were actually sprayed. In other words, they were fumigated. Entire buildings used to be fumigated. In some instances, they actually used to apply mercury chloride to the actual specimen itself with a brush. So potentially, there may be specimens amongst our collection that have actually got some mercury associated with them. But nowadays, because of integrated pest management, everything goes through the freezer for seven days, plus we have um, sticky traps and monitors that we um, check um, on a regular basis for insects but that doesn't mean we don't get outbreaks. Yeah. <laughs> we have had, in um, 2008 and eight nine. we had a massive outbreak of cigarette beetles, mm. and it was an absolute nightmare. I was gonna say, because even like a small one, it's like about yay big, the size of a grain of rice, yes. if that comes in on someone's shoe, or on their jeans. Yeah. So basically what we do is within the collection itself, there's no eating, um, you can't bring fresh material into the collection, nor into this area here. Everything that comes into this area here is pressed and dried.
3: Apart from the training that you provide
1: your volunteers in-house,
3: do they generally have a background in um, botany or
1: science or preservation? They come from all walks of life, but um, there's usually, many of them have an artistic flair, mm-hmm. um, but a real passion for plants is one of the main characteristics that they generally have. But no, they come from all walks of life, and both male and female we have... What I should also explain is the images around the room. This is part of what we call our milestone program, so that every time a volunteer reaches 2,500 specimens, we actually allow them to select an image, sorry, that specimen is then imaged and given to them as a gift for that achievement. So every 2,500 sheet they will get um, a specimen that's documented for them. The other thing you also uh, should also point out is that each of these has a little uh, note on it which actually states, for example, this is the 10,000 specimen that was mounted by this particular person and that record is documented on the actual specimen label and also in our database. So it stays with that record for perpetuity. Um, The other reason we also have them around the room, one is because the volunteers love to see the information, but also when we have visitors, it gives you the idea of the diversity of plants and also the various ways in which the specimens have to be mounted or can be mounted, depending on what you're actually working with. Um, We've got one here that's um, 30,000... This is the 30,000 specimen for this particular person. It's how,
2: it's how many years would that be? Uh,
1: she was here for over 30 years. Wow, wow. that's incredible. Yeah. So it's extraordinary what yeah. goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I'd like to do now is just very briefly mention to you that it's, once the specimens are actually curated, um, we capture that information on a database. In the year 2000 we began to database all our specimens, that is to capture all the information associated with that specimen. And that becomes part of what we call the Australasian virtual herbarium, and we'll show you that once we get upstairs so that that you can see. Is that a
2: proprietary database, or what program do you use?
1: We use Specify, which is an an open-source software. So in-house, we actually have Specify, where we capture our data then all that data goes to Canberra and is aggregated and then becomes part of the Australasian Virtual Herbarium. Okay. So all Australasian herbaria contribute to that particular site. What and so-
3: interaction is there
1: nas- internationally? Oh, Very inter- strong interaction. So in other words, we can loan material between herbaria, So if a botanist has to do a project on a particular area, they might request material from us, or if our botanist is doing a particular project, we'll request material from them. But it happens nationally and internationally. The other um, interaction is that Herbaria like to grow their collection, and one way we grow our collection is through donation and exchange. Mm -hmm. So we exchange material with other herbaria, both nationally and internationally. Also visitation by botanists. Sometimes they will actually come to view your collection, and we do the same. So there's a very strong interaction between the institutions. Did
2: that get slowed down when those
1: plants got burnt by customs? (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, that, I know that's a
1: very painful topic What? what um, yes it was a difficult time specifically for overseas so there was a period of time where loans weren't being sent overseas and weren't being sent back because we were working together with the Department of Agriculture to make sure that everything had been double checked um, so that it wouldn't happen again Now Paris was the herbarium that was sending material to Queensland Unfortunately through a whole lot of um, unfortunate situations the material was in fact destroyed. And we are still building, Australia is still building that relationship with Paris. So
3: uh, the exchanges, are they mostly duplicates? Would it be yes. an item that you've got a duplicate yes, in your collection? Yes, that's correct. And then you make that known to other people so they can fill gaps in there? That's
1: exactly right. So what happens is if we go out into the field or a botanist goes out into the field, not only will they collect a voucher, and that is a oh. specimen for us, but they'll collect multiple copies of that or examples of that, yeah. or what we call duplicates, so that we can send them to other herbaria. That interaction um, involves where we have actually been in contact with other herbarians say, well, what is it that you would like to receive? Some mm-hmm. herbaria want to receive everything. Anything that we can provide duplicates of, they're happy to receive. Others are more selective, so yes, it is duplicates. Mm-hmm. The other uh, benefit of that is, of course, risk mitigation. So if you've got a specimen in your herbarium and you've then sent duplicates elsewhere, if anything happens to your specimen, you've can deal. you got access to material elsewhere. A perfect example of that is we have duplicates from Berlin. So Berlin was destroyed during the Second World War. We are now discovering amongst these folders duplicate material that was sent here from Berlin and sometimes we're the only holding institution. So um, it, it's an incredible archive. So from here, material goes into a freezer and then comes through to the other side, which is the main collection. These are our old herbarium cabinets. Come through. <laughs> Ooh. So you're now in the the collections proper, so the ground floor and first floor are the herbarium specimens and the top floor, which we'll get to in a moment, is where the library is housed. So the collection is housed in these cabinets. When we proceed across um, to that side of the building in a moment, you'll see the freezer door and it links between the volunteers' area that we were in previously through into this main collection. Big freezer. It's a huge walk-in <laughs> freezer. So once the material comes through the freezer, it then has to be incorporated into the collection. We incorporate our specimens into the collection according to family number. So every, um, within the collection, we have 384 families, and so we recognise um, the various families, and then we know where to put the material in. So, if you want to pop round here for a sec, again we're very, very tight, and this is one of the reasons why tours are always. um... So, when you say families, do you mean genius? No, No, I'll I'll explain this. I'll explain this to you in a sec. Yeah. So. We have what we call the Cronquist system of classification. And I won't go into a, a huge lot of information. It's basically the dewey of plants. <laughs> basically, yeah. exactly. And that's usually the analogy that I use. <laughs> so in this case, we've got family 233, which is Euphorbiaceae. If I talk about eucalyptus, it, fa- it belongs to the family Myrtaceae, and that's family 194. So every family is represented within the collection. So in this case here, I know that it's Australian. It's mounted, and then its botanical name, its genus, and its species. So within these cabinets, we then have the material according to family, genus, and species. So, if I, for example, pull that folder out, you'll see that it's Euphorbiaceae. It's in a coloured folder, and it'll have the specimens within, within like that. So. Um, We were talking about the Dewey system before, apart from uh, the fact that they're by family, genus and species. For Australia, we also put them in state and territory folders, so that makes it easy for you to actually locate a particular specimen. So if you know that that particular species occurs in Queensland, you go for a green folder. So it kind of requires that you have a good, as a collection manager, a really good knowledge, general knowledge, like almost like the indexes in your brain to know where to find everything. You do, uh, and that comes with time. But the other thing is we've got a fabulous database. So you go into your database, you query your database, and that's the beauty of having it digitised. Whereas prior to that, yes, you knew... Um, family, so you had to come to the family, and you'd have to go to the cupboard and select, you know, virtually plough through every single specimen until you would locate the one you have. I mean, I know we can still, we still have to do that. Yeah. It's a lot of we,
3: handling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah
1: but yeah. if you go to the database, you actually know what you hold yeah. and that's the benefit
0: of actually doing do that. anyone
3: else feel really like surprised that they're just there? <laughs> it feels like they're so precious and fragile. Um, oh yeah.
0: Yes, but I also have a query about... Because I work in digitisation, so um, do you actually have digital copies of the specimens okay. themselves? So let's, <laughs> move <into this> <laughs> let's move into this room. Let's move into this. Is that a very nice? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, it was a beautiful timing on my part. <gasps> nice. Oh,
1: tell you in a second. Wait, two more I Okay. So the databasing began in the year two thousand, and of course we continue to database and we deliver that information. But in about 2014, we were given some funding from the US through um, Global Plants on JSTOR, through what was known as the um, Global Plants Initiative, to image all the type specimens. So what is a type?
4: A very important
1: specimen. Very important (laughs) specimen. So here I have a type specimen, an example of a type. Now, when something is given a a name for the first time, that name is based on a specimen or specimens. And that name is always linked to a particular specimen, what is known as the type specimen. So for example, in this case, this material was used by a botanist to give it the botanical name. So it's called a type specimen.
2: When's that
1: one? Okay, <laughs> this one. This one I can't. What well, that writing no. It's, it's South Africa. It was actually published in South Africa.
0: So the type is kind of like the exemplar of the plant. It is. It's and if like you
1: want to, if it. you want to be absolutely certain that what you've got, if you're mm-hmm. trying to identify something and you want to be absolutely certain that what you've got is that particular species, mm-hmm. you always come back to the type. To answer your question, the only images, sorry, the only specimens that we have actually imaged are our type specimens. We now have over th- almost 30,000 types that have been imaged, and they are accessible on global plants on JSTOR. Um, eventually the plan is that each one of these images will be linked to its database record on the Australasian virtual herbarium, so that not only will you see the record, as in the data, but you'll also see an image.
3: Is, imaging, is, is there ever going to be a time where imaging is part of the natural yes. flow of collecting yes. new specimens?
1: Yes, it'll be part of that curation process. So our plan is eventually to image the entire collection. Mm-hmm. Once that's done, any new material coming in, the process will be d- drying, curating, that is mounting, databasing, imaging and then into the collection. It'll be part of that entire workflow. Yes, absolutely.
3: So you've got this trying to make up... Yes. Yeah, because you've got to do the historical collection while new stuff's coming in. So yes. ideally, you're digitising the historical stuff faster than the new stuff's coming in.
1: Yes. Yep.
0: So we're doing the type specimens at the moment. Yes. It is very important that you still take photographs of the specimen not of the plant in situ? We take
1: both. You take both? We take both. One of the things we do, um, and we encourage digital images to also be taken to link to the specimen itself, because there's information about habit, habitat. There's a lot of information that is really important. We have the flora of Victoria, And we have a lot of images that are linked to the descriptions associated with that. So images, uh, digital images, as in the field, are really important. Also, and when they're pressed,
0: they look quite different, don't they? They do. Mm -hmm. They do. Yeah, but it's also really tricky when you're in situ of actually getting a photograph that gives you the kind of information that you Mm. require when you're looking at specimens. Because Mm. some people just go, "Oh, that looks really pretty," and it's like, "Cool." I no, it's it's more like. I can't see how many leaves are down the bottom. Yes, that's a really big picture of the flower. But, you know. collecting but we, no, no, we have yeah. quite
1: clear information yeah. Um, yeah. when you, we've just been on a collection development field trip the whole division, Sally uh, was part of that and was involved in some of that photography work and also we get clear instructions you need to show, you know, if it's got mature leaves juvenile leaves, all those sorts of characters that help you to identify that particular species yes, it's not just a <coughs> snapshot yeah. Yeah. so most of the photography has been done on what we call our leaf aptus camera mm-hmm. um, it's all... very old fashioned it's pretty, don't knock it <laughs> it takes amazing images um, and uh, that, that's the, the, the current system that's being used
0: and um, this was all funded through um, the US the, um... it's quite easy to set up a focal point because all of the paper is essentially exactly the same size, is that—is that true or is it if the samples are quite thick yes. that then if the... you've got thicker samples, Mm -hmm. you've got
1: the depth of field, Mm -hmm. so what has to happen is a series of images are taken and then the stacking takes place. Oh, wow. Wow. So, for example, a cycad, some -hmm. of them have really large cones, Mm -hmm. or if you've got uh, fungi that are really quite thick, if you think about eucalyptus, um, uh, the fruits, Mm -hmm. quite thick, also quite a number of images are taken and then flattened, Yeah. So they're quite amazing images. <laughs>
3: how, how often do you get new type samples? Like how often are new plants being discovered and brought in?
1: It really varies. Um, collection development, field trip, we had a new wattle, a new acacia that was discovered. So the frequent, sometimes we can have up to five or six per year. It just really depends. It really depends. And the other thing that happens is often we discover types in the material we already hold. So it might have been something that was only described to genus level or um, someone, it's already got a name on it, but there's always been some uncertainty as to whether it is that particular species. And so what happens now with molecular work, so in other words, um, we often get requests for removal of small portions of leaves and, of course, they extract DNA and that then can provide you with more information and takes it further. Is it a new species? Okay. Well, I saw in the drying machine you said not to go above 40
0: degrees because you'll use DNA information. That
1: That's right. So it can destroy the oh, DNA. Okay. So it doesn't make it suitable for mm. molecular analysis, for extraction of DNA. Good point. Yeah. And on that
3: then, from the drying process, how long does the DNA last? Well, yep. over time.
1: We have um, usually, up until recently, it was always the, the younger the, p- the collection, the better. Sometimes we get material, we get requested, will we please have samples of a material of only 15 years collection, 30 years, but now as technology is improving, they're actually pushing that boundary and they're getting some very nice, record, nice um, information from quite old records.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: If I've got something large format that needs imaging, yes. Yeah,
0: it's done here. Yeah. yeah. yeah we have really is well,
4: Angara is the, is the digital thing. this yeah. one. Yeah. Upstairs, we've got a few different scanners, but they're
1: not as big as that. Okay. So is there anything else? No, so we're going up to the library. <laughs> to to Material, let's see.
4: Um, This is our library, it just takes up one floor of the building and all of our material that we hold in the library is up here. We don't have anything in an off-site store or anything like that. Two full-time staff are employed here, myself and our our library technician, Philip, and um, we have ten volunteers, nine nine or ten volunteers at the moment, who come in and help us. And they usually do about four or so hours when they come in once a a week. So we've almost got a full-time person made up with all those volunteers, which is kind of what I aim to have up here. could do with more, but you you can't always get that.
1: You're talking to the right bunch of people. (laughs) I actually
2: looked to see if I could be a volunteer here, and your site said not taking any
4: applications
1: for
2: volunteers. Well, we've
4: only got so many workstations, so we can only have so many and then we've got to schedule everyone in so it's quite, if someone can't do Tuesday between 1 and 5 then they might not be able to come in so it's a bit tricky, it takes quite a bit of management Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still well worth doing it because we get a lot of work done that we wouldn't get done otherwise a lot of listing and revealing things that are in collections that don't have full listings and everything that's in there so they're really useful and handy for us we have well, volunteer workstations. Mm-hmm. We've got volunteers who help us do cataloguing of material that gets donated. We're always receiving donations, particularly as, um, what do you call them, baby boomers are downsizing and they all have beautiful gardening book collections and um, they're moving into smaller apartments and we involved? get them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we, mm-hmm. we often have to go and fill up a car full yeah. of many, many boxes, deceased mm-hmm. estates and things. Mm-hmm. And then we bring them back here. They go through the freezer to get rid of any bugs and fungi spores and things. Mm. And then we just sit and compare. I try and get a volunteer to sit and compare to what we have on the, on the in the collection already and what we w- might keep. So that's quite a big process when we get a donation in. But it's good because we don't have a huge budget and it's nice to get material that we don't already have. Speaking of which, we collect... We're, we're a little bit like the State Library in that we have material in all formats, all, all different kinds of things. We've got journals, realia, manuscripts, um, monographs, artworks, photographs, slides, everything. Um, But we've got a much narrower field of focus. Mm. So our subject area is pretty much on plant taxonomy, systematics, biodiversity, um, plant conservation. Um, We have a huge collection of floras which cover the plants all across the world. So if you're looking for information on a plant from uh, Spain. We'll have the Spanish. We'll have a flora of Spain or Iberico, something rather.
0: So does that mean you're using Dewey, or, or would that have too many? Yeah, of we the use Dewey. Okay.
4: We have a slightly altered form mm-hmm. of Dewey <laughs> because <laughs> we it have a lot, to right a lot, a lot between yeah. the fives <laughs> and six hundreds. That's most of our books in that mm-hmm. little range of Dewey mm-hmm. numbers. So it is a little bit different, but not, not hugely. We, we use um, plant families as a... And we give a number to a plant family. So for books on Mertesi, it's 583 point something or other. Yeah. Don't know what, but... It... <laughs> and then everything in there, get the cut to number decides how we then break it down and put them on the shelf.
2: So you mentioned people come in and use the library. Who are your members? Are they... No members.
4: Only staff. So it's a, it's a staff library. Um, But if we have requests from people doing PhD level or above research, then we'll invite them in. Sometimes we'll get requests from people who have looked everywhere and they know what they want and we've got it and no one else has it. And we can either supply them a copy or we'll invite them in, depending on what's easier. Um, It's a lot easier for us to just scan a section and email it out to someone. That just means... So you do Unless do
0: document delivery? Yeah. Not into yep.
2: library loans?
0: No.
4: Well, we would too, if the National Library or the State Library requested it and it went there and posted the patron went to look at the material there, we'd do that. We don't have our records in Libraries Australia, so we're not really in there as an easy target for loans mm-hmm. on that scale. Why is that? Uh, historically, it was a bit of a concern that we'd get hit with too many requests. Uh-huh. And... Um, that's just how it's been but we've recently changed we're now using Kohar as our library management system yeah. <laughs> and we might you know we've got a stronger relationship now with libraries australia or trove whatever they call now and uh, we might tip them in at some point if we find the time to get onto that project <laughs> just
1: to clarify trove is just the public facing thing version of libraries australia they yeah, are about to amalgamate oh really yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. In the next couple of months, it'll be called Trove Consolidated or something like that. God, that just sounds like a bad mm. corporation. There's
4: a lot of reading you can do on it, if yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you care to. You could follow up, yeah, that's a little bit of an intro. Okay. <laughs> all the cabinets that are kind of lined the room—they're all our archives and manuscripts cabinets. Okay. Um, they contain all sorts of different things. What are the spades? (laughs) The spades Mm -hmm. are from uh, ceremonial tree plantings or commemorative tree plantings. It's been a bit of a tradition right since the gardens first began to invite celebrated dignitaries and royalty Mm -hmm. and premiers and governors Mm -hmm. to come and plant a tree. And then when they did, they got their name written on a spade. So some of the spades are very busy. Some of them are a bit emptier. There's about eight more spades in the Red Book's room. So um, is this
1: just Victoria, or...?
4: This is just our garden. But they're people oh, from all around the world, so you've got the Shah of Iran somewhere, and the Queen of Fiji or something, the Queen of Tonga, the Duke Chinese. and Duchess of Gloucester. Prince
2: Leopold of Battenberg. Yeah, there's oh,
4: all the sorts. <laughs> um, We've got a field we're national. very cosmopolitan. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Basically, if you've got a title, and you're given a spade, it goes in the cupboard. Yeah. <laughs> and we do still
4: occasionally put a name on a spade. The last person was our retired um, a CEO, the previous CEO. He got his name on a spade. And Dame um, Elizabeth Murdoch, when she turned 100, she got her name on a spade too. She was the patron of the gardens until she died, I believe. This, this little section is our economic botany, um, Museum of Economic Botany material cabinets. So there's a few of them and they just contain relics from a museum that we used to have on site we've got a volunteer at the moment going through and um, itemizing everything because we hadn't had a listing before but she's trying to make a spreadsheet of everything that's in there and doing documentary photographs for us which is quite a good thing to do we've got fiber samples in here Um, so that's that's one of the sorts of things you never know what you'll find when you open up a cabinet the more we get to itemize and list, then the easier it is to know. Um, our rare books room, I'll just turn the light on, it's a bit small. It contains about 5,000 monographs. Most of those books were purchased or uh, exchanged initially with Mueller, so he's sort of the basis of our rich and old and very broad library collection we also in here have artworks we've got framed artworks down the end of the room and then we've got unframed artworks <laughs> in these boxes and Shop. these artworks could be material that has come out of the collections when the collections were database so the collector might have illustrated a fungi or something like that and rather than keep that illustration down in the collections we bring it up here and we'll put it in a suitable box from
2: banks at all? not original ones no
4: Okay. They all went back to queue. Would that be an
2: illustration?
4: Yeah, i yeah. give you a, a quick look. look. So she
2: has got a that's as well. Yeah, so these, we've got an
4: image database <laughs> <laughs> and we've got a sort of slow volunteer run or volunteer operated project to digitise our small artworks. So these are artworks by a woman named Euphemia Henderson who was once engaged to Mueller. It is a lovely name. Very flowery, just like her paintings. Did you say
2: five thousand monographs?
4: Yeah, about that. I'm just trying to find one. Let's turn the right way up. So that's oh, wow. that's an example oh, wow. of one of her works.
2: Wow, that's beautiful when
4: um, So she did flower t- painting. Oh she wasn't God, a I botanical know. illustrator. She was more a. It was more like a nice pastime for a lady of the mid to late 19th century. So she was a botanical artist rather than a botanical um, illustrator? Sort of, I think you'd call her a flower painter. Okay. Yeah, so her works aren't scientific, but um, she did used to write to Mueller and send him specimens and ask what the species were, and then he would write back and tell her what they were. and So they. that's how they developed their relationship. Um, and so there are a lot of Euphemia's plants i think specimens of hers in the collection as well she used to collect algae for Mueller. so that's sort of just one of the things they're all different sometimes they'll be I don't know fern prints of ferns or they might be fruit drawings by David Boyle who was one of our earliest horticulturists in Victoria he was a very religious man and also drew all his fruit which was really nice they're all heirloom
2: sort of
4: old varieties that you probably can't get anymore so that's an interesting collection as well right. they are all, all kept on acid-free paper um, well the paper they're drawn on is not necessarily um, but we try and put between them um, tissue or, or acid-free paper that yeah is archivally sound is or mylar propylene polyprop my, or mylar yep. containers as well are these being
2: imaged or
4: yep the, if they fit on our a3 scanner they're, they're being imaged. Right. If they're large and they're significant, then we'll send them down to um, Angharad. Or if someone has requested, you know, sometimes we'll partner with a company who might be producing posters or something. And if it's a large collection of material, we might send them down to Angharad to do so. We do what we can up here Mm. um, with our flatbed and um, otherwise downstairs. So that is our rare books room.
1: Um, I've noticed at the ends of the moving shelves there are holes. Is that yeah. supposed to be art?
4: or It is art. Well, when we put oh, this, this in, mm. um, if you stand back a bit and if you know your plants, you'll see that it's a correa reflexor, I think. I so you can see the it. flower dangling down.
2: Yeah.
4: Mm. Um, when we first put these in, the company who were doing it had just got this new digital cutting system. And they said, oh, <laughs> can we put your logo on? And I was like, mm, how about a picture or an image? And they said, oh, we'll give it a try. We haven't done it. And that's what they could produce. And then when we were putting the things together, I got my volunteers to get some coloured paper and make them a little bit of coloured. Paper. Oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> that's That is really. So this is our pamphlet collection. Just so that you know, we can anything that's not firm enough to put on the shelves, we put in our pans. This is our reference collection. Um, our journals collection. So all the way down to the end of the room are our journals. They're arranged in alphabetical order. We're currently in the process of barcoding all the bound journals because um, up until now we've had a manual system of checking material out to people and it's kind of frustrating. So we're, we've got volunteers focusing on barcoding at the moment, which is a good thing to do. We can check things out electronically. We've got about 1,700 journal titles in the library and about 200 of them are still active. Um, So that means we're still receiving them either weekly, monthly, quarterly or whatever um, the frequency of publication is. On the other side of the room we've got um, our monographs collection and that also spreads all the way down the end of the room. It uses Dewey as a classification system and in that collection you will find material on systematics, Biodiversity Landscape, like, landscape gardening, horticulture, the history of exploration in Australia, all sorts of topics related to botany. Mm-hmm. I've got out two framed artworks. So these are the sort of material that we have at the end of five the Red Boxes. Books Room. One's a contemporary uh, current work, just painted, drawn in the last five or so years by Beverly Lewis. And the other is a beautiful picture of an artichoke by Betty Conabier. She was commissioned to do a series of weeds in Victoria and she created about 80 paintings. We've got 57 of them, and she's probably one of Australia's best botanical artists, so we're pretty lucky to have them. We also have art that's been commissioned or uh, worked up by artists to go into publications. So if someone's um, discovered a new species of acacia, for example, which is what happened in this instance, um, an artist named Marley Moyer was commissioned by the author to create some illustrations for the publication Which then when you're making a new um, Describing a new tax art, you've got to always publish it in a journal and these would have gone into that public uh, that article Uh, We also try and keep track of the gardens history. We lost a lot of records um, About the gardens history in the 1940s when Mm -hmm. a lot of especially Mueller material was disposed of So anything that we do find we keep now we now keep Yes, I'm sorry if you've already said this, but why was it disposed of? We're not really sure. Okay. <laughs> it may have been. Some people say it was repurposed for, like, paper pulp during the war, so they could make new paper out of it. I see. Yep. And given the extent of Mueller's correspondence and, you know, writing, uh, I don't know, the, the a massive amount of writing that he did, it's entirely likely that's possible, because mm-hmm. we would have had a huge amount of paper here. Yeah. Some people say it might've been burnt just to make space. It was also around the time that the old herbarium was demolished and everyone moved over here. So it might've been a clean out. We don't really know. I don't think it was malicious or anything. It was just a real sad thing. (laughs) So here we've got an old register. This is one of the few things that does survive here. It's an old register of accounts that Mueller filled out. And then later on, as it moved through time, Guilfoyle filled out. So this is, you can see the signatures of all the employees who were working mm. here when they collected their pay at the end of the week. Oh, <laughs> wow. So we, so we use this sort of um, record to when we get requests from just trying to confirm that their relative used to work here. Mm. And then we can offer them a signature and tell them what they were earning and how long they worked and all of that sort of thing. So this week mm. he paid £288, for 15 pence, and what, six shillings? For all the staff for maybe that week. I'm not sure how long a period. Yep, got oh, to see how much they all earned. Mm. Some of them just sometimes signed with a eighteen sixty-eight. Oh. Yeah. Do you know what the oldest thing in your collection is? That. Oh, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So is that is nice. a fifteen thirty-one <laughs> publication by a German uh, herbalist named Leonard Fuchs, whom the fuchsia is named after, and it's a old herbal basically, he he grew a huge amount of plants in his garden
2: How do you spell his surname?
4: F-U-C-H-S Thanks. and it's actually one of the key early botanical publications that actually properly described and visually represented the plants that were being described. The material the plant illustrations in here are actually recognisable, whereas in all the previous publications it would be a very generic style of just a tree or a flower, with a description and a name sometimes, but You couldn't actually look at it and say, oh, that's a daffodil or that's a celery or whatever. So started it all. Yeah, he and another fellow contemporary called... Who's the other... What's the other herbal that we have? We've got another one, same age, very similar, German again. When
3: When did you acquire that? How long has that been in the collection? I think this one was
4: purchased in the 70s. We have one a different version of this that was Mueller's. Mm-hmm. It's a more condensed version. And it's missing some plates, but that one was Mueller's. So things came in at different times. Yep. We wouldn't be able to purchase something like this today. It's beyond, way beyond our budget. Mm. Our rare books collection is fairly static. If we're lucky, we'll, we'll get a donation or we might see something in auction and we have a bit of spare cash, we might be able to get it. But we don't grow very much in that area.
2: Do you get requests from other institutions, other herbarians of big institutions to see For this?
4: That? No, there's a few copies around the world and it's been imaged extensively. Okay. Yeah, so I've never had a request
1: from anyone to see it.
4: <laughs> but people love seeing it when they come.
1: <laughs> and you've worked with the Melbourne Museum and the Biodiversity Heritage Library to.
4: Yeah, this one, we didn't image this one. Right. When, when we did our little stint with them, we yeah. imaged mostly Mueller publications and things associated with Mueller.
3: So with an item like that, where would that have spent most of its life? In you the know, it's, it's, it's
4: herbarium that was across the road that yeah, got demolished. You no, know, it's original. You know, oh, I, I, don't sure. don't life, don't don't it. I don't know. Not sure. In some not person's his do When something tells us its provenance, we'll record it. Yep. And I think there is a little bit of prominence in there, but I don't think we go very far back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I said before, we have floras of the world. I've got out one volume of our Flora of Victoria. That's a five, four volume publication which we no longer expand as a print publication. It's now transferred into an electronic form and it's called the Vic Flora and it's available free for everyone to use. And so anytime now a new plant is described. It gets described and published in that flora. We're no longer publishing those books. But next to that, as an example, on the right, I think, is um, the flora, a flora and volume of the flora of Jamaica. And I think it's opened up to an orchid page. It, it is. is. You are, orchid lady. <laughs> <laughs> I went, ooh, it's looking <laughs> serious. <laughs> there we go. Um, the two little publications above, or the,
2: mm, is it two?
4: Oh no, the one there's a publication there with the cream cover that's curtis's botanical magazine that's the world's longest running botanical journal first started in 1787 um in the the book just below it is a issue from 1791 and that's the first representation of australian flora in that publication so that was just three years after what was it Seventeen eighty. When did Cook come? 1788. So yeah. within three years, Australian plants were being depicted in um, popular. The first
2: plate was 1788.
4: 17, 17. Yeah. yeah. So within three years of settlement starting, uh, our flora was starting to spread across to Europe and they could become interested in it and hence then plant, potentially plant those plants in their gardens.
2: I love the fact this is in Latin.
4: <laughs> yeah. And it's all woodblock it's prints. So they're hand-coloured? Hand-coloured. Aww, yeah. Gorgeous. It was also the, um, the first publication, if you can see that bit of white paper on the other side, yeah. it was the first publication ever to acknowledge the printer, the engraver, and mm. the, the artist. Aww. That had never been done before, so that's quite significant when you think about it, bibliographic history. Um, it's also the first book to show, if you let me in here, to show plants from the New World, so after Columbus went to America. We've um, got a tomato in there. We've got corn. Ooh! So that only became known to mm-hmm. Europe after Columbus first navigated to America. There's also chilies in here and a few other plants from the New World. So that's quite significant in those in that term. Over this last little tiny book, which is a 1703 publication, that's William Dampier's. Account of his exploration of the West Australian coast, which he conducted in 1699. And he didn't do the plant illustrations, I think one of his crew did, but um, this is the first book to publish Australian plants ever. So that's quite a significant little one. This used to belong to Mueller, it was his personal copy. And yeah, so I thought I'd get that book out for you to have a look at. And that is about all I have to tell you about the material on the table
0: that one there um, Darwin's
1: journal that's That's obviously that is that's because of these two specimens so just to finish off I just pulled out a selection of specimens for you to have a look at just to show you um, what's represented within the collection but some of the real um, striking collections that we have Sally was talking about Fuchs The specimen that's over here is a liverwort and it's a liverwort called Marcantia and Sally was mentioning how it actually looks, the illustrations look like the plant. This is one of our earliest collections. We believe this one to be collected late 1500s, early 1600s. And it's Marcantia, which is a liverwort. And many of you probably have it growing in your pots. If you've got little garden pots, you'll see it. It has these little upright umbrellas um, extending from the actual leaf surface, what we call the thallus. This is very, very old. One of the um, interesting features of this particular sheet is that it's pre-Linnaean. Now if you may remember your botany, post-Linnaeus, Linnaeus came up with a binomial system of a genus and a species. Pre that they would actually write a polynomial, so they would describe the plant in a number of words. Um, It would be a description and this particular sheet we believe was actually annotated by Linnaeus's son. So um, there's some extraordinary information on each sheet. Now it's a document, it's a primary document. So we have the plant, it gives you information about the plant. You've got original handwriting plus history. So it's not only a sheet that's used for taxonomy, systematics, um, the general study of botany, but there is so much history associated with that sheet. we love metadata. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Up is. And, um, I'm
0: then so happy right now. <laughs> <laughs> These
1: sheets here, the one that we've got just here is Banksia serrata, which was collected by Banks and Solander in 1770 in Botany Bay. That is a type specimen. We've recently discovered, so we've recently discovered through our global collection, two specimens that were collected by Charles Darwin on the voyage, during the voyage of the Beagle. So on their way to South America, these two collections were made. They were made by Darwin. They actually went back to London. We believe they were part of Hooker's Herbarium and then eventually made their way here, either directly to Muller through Exchange or possibly through um, the Sonder Herbarium. Now, the reason why... Excuse me. The reason I pulled this out, kindly, Sally, kindly allowed me to get it out of the rare books room is because it's the voyage of the Beagle, the actual diary but it's a a, a republished obviously, Mm -hmm. it's not the original but if we have a look in here we actually discovered the other day that you can follow his diary and it talks about 1834 and where he was and in this case it was collected at Cape Tremont and this is the time that he's writing Um, in 1834 at the time that he was collecting this material. Then we also have, um, someone was talking about do plants retain their colour when they're pressed and dried? Some do. This example here is anemone and it was collected in Florence in 1852 and you can see that some of the colour is still retained. But in most cases the colour disappears. We also have material that represents um, taxa that's now extinct this was collected by Muller in 1854 in Omeo. It's now listed as known, not known to, um, known to be extinct. Now, the other interesting thing someone earlier on mentioned Flora australiensis. This label here tells us, it's got a little B on it, it tells us that that specimen actually travelled to the UK in the 1800s, so George Bentham could write Flora australiensis. So, again, primary documentation, information, not only locality, but also the history of that sheet and also the plant itself, which was now, is now considered extinct.
2: Would it be possible for scientists to either extract seed or any of the
1: DNA and reproduce that plant? If technology permitted it, portions of, of, of a leaf could be but whether the DNA um, could be cloned. Um, We don't know whether any of that seed is in fact um, viable. We have had requests in the past for (laughs) rare and threatened plants to remove the seed, but we have not had any information back as to success. The collection also is very, very rich in algal material. And just recently we discovered um, a specimen that was collected in the Sea of Japan, and this is a watercolour. Mm -hmm. And Telesius is well known for the most beautiful um, algal watercolours that he produced. But you can see representation it's is very very yeah. accurate um, we continue to discover new plants in this case it's an elga and this was recently discovered in Tasmania and it's actually been given uh, the name after our CEO Tim Entwistle so you'll see that it's in bella <laughs> so Ent, Tim cool. Entwistle so Entwistle bella and the Italian or the Latin a beautiful looking alga have and you had something named yeah, after I yourself? A midge. <laughs> <laughs> have you? A midge. <laughs> a midge. What's a midge? It's a, a little tiny tiny insect. That actually, a little insect that, oh, grows, okay. uh, that actually lives in a gall. Okay, an insect was <laughs> named after That's pretty <laughs> awesome. I thought you were going to say plant was named after you. Do you have any plants neighbor? <laughs> no, no, I don't no, have no. any plants. No, and doctor, your your no. expertise in fungi? So my right? expertise is in bryophytes, in mosses. Mosses. So mosses and liverworts. So oh. Marcantia is a liverwort and this is a moss here here and this one was collected by Muller and he had arrived as I said in 1853, and not long after that he was already on Wilson's prom (laughs) collecting and this is our tallest moss so he was really (laughs) go-getter then we have a lichen this particular lichen comes from one of the uh, piece of slate that comes from one of our buildings (laughs) oh wow sweet and then also (laughs) some fungi and then to finish off Orchids. Yay. We have I've been eyeing one. off that Caledonia for
0: some time. Please tell me about that Caledonia. We have a very
1: large, sorry, we've got quite a comprehensive um, orchid collection. As you know, there are many avid orchid collectors. And lots of George Lyles. Yes, George Lyles. Um, yes. There was once of his collections that are here and there's the history of that, of course, at the museum. Because he was a moth and butterfly man as well. And there's the link between between the two. You were asking about images taken in the field. This is the old-fashioned way, of course, mm. of having a hard copy of an image um, of the actual plant. So, really just a snapshot of, um, of what we hold. I'm really
3: blown away when you think about um, this traveling back to England in the yeah. 1800s, you know. And then coming back
1: again. And, then coming this, back. and coming
3: back again. This is not in, you know, some fabulous, Container, going medically sealed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, you know, this is you yeah. know. we've actually yeah. got
2: the booklet at work on um, Bob Mueller's trip to Ovio and back again. I paid about eighty dollars for it three or four years ago, but I haven't had it for a long time. But yeah, I just yeah. find it crazy that the same principles that I used when I was ten, compressing flowers, mm, are exactly so the same. Yeah. same yeah. Used. Yeah, exactly yep. the same.
1: Yes. It, it works. Mm. It works. If it ain't broke, don't fix it.
3: And when you Mm. say you found things, you've discovered things in the collection, so you were talking about this one, does someone go, Oh,
1: hey guys, this seems to say Darwin. You know, I, I, can like tell you, I can tell you the process so the material went through and was mounted through the volunteers area mm-hmm. and it was popped back into the cupboard, we currently have a project with four database officers that are systematically working through the foreign or the global collection mm-hmm. so they'll pick up a folder with a whole lot of specimens and they'll open it and they're entering the data and all of a sudden they'll come across the information. And then, um, just to give you another example, we had our first specimen just recently associated with Captain Bly. Mm. No. Wow. Mm. So See, it's on our Instagram. So one of our database officers a couple of weeks ago found this specimen, and it's associated with the Bly um, wow. expedition. We also, another one we recently located was a specimen that was collected by Commisson. Now, Comisson actually travelled on an expedition that was run by Bougainville. In that expedition, Comisson actually had a relationship with a particular woman while he was still prior to the expedition. Anyway, this woman dressed as a man and went on the expedition. Mm. She was on that expedition for nearly 18 months before they (laughs) realised. And it was the Tahitians that discovered that she was actually a female and um, so her name's Jean Barret. This? I don't know <laughs> how. she was or something? I don't know how. But um, she's the first woman that has circumnavigated the globe. Oh. She's And, and all that star. story came out because oh. one of the database officers saw the label, Commerson, Googled Commerson. Suddenly all this information comes up and Jean Barret, and the story just... That's great. Mm. So it's So it's all these things that, that we can and so discover. And of course, having um, things digitized allows you to do that. Yeah. Mm. So we build on our collection <laughs> and we build on others. <laughs> digitization. <laughs> yeah. mm. Anyway. Digitization
2: and metadata. <laughs> Okay. You're not going to get a group that's more excited about metadata.
1: And you're, and you're probably <laughs> so not going to get it, so many questions in your life. As, yeah. Yeah. Is there a lot of
3: material out there in universities and stuff like that
1: around Australia? Is there a lot of things tucked away? There could be. Potentially there could be. Um, last A couple of years ago... Um, so what often happens is if, depending on what the, bu- um, the administration is within a, a university, potentially they could say, we are no longer going to support a herbarium, so yes. it becomes orphaned. So in our case, for example, we acquired the Monash University herbarium because mm-hmm. they no longer could look after it, so they contacted us and so we acquired that and that eventually will be processed and become part of our collection, but it'll also always have um, an annotation on the database record that it was previously um, a specimen of the Monash Iberium, because mm-hmm. there could be publications that may refer to a specimen that was held within the Monash Herbarium. So you need to be able to track it down. So
2: you integrate it into the collection but keep that record, yes. you wouldn't keep them as separate? No, they're integrated.
1: They're integrated, but all through data, through capturing yeah. data you can track yeah, all those. Mm.
2: This is awesome. <laughs> You're just sort of feeding off everyone's excitement, aren't you?
0: Yes. That was Peter Milne and Sally Stewart from the National Herbarium of Victoria. Thanks for listening, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with New Cardigan, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, especially if you would like to see more of the images of the tour, and Facebook, or check out our website www.newcardigan.org. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Remember to keep an ear out for more CardiCasts and check out our websites for events, merchandise, news and more. And remember folks, JFDI.